Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 14. This morning, if you have a Bible, please uh, turn there. If not, the passage will be on the screen uh, in just a moment. Um, A lot of you who know me know that my personal trainer uh, last August moved to Hawaii, and and it was quite a devastating experience in my life. I'm I'm, I'm not over it yet. Uh, For those of you who who may be new or wondering how a pastor of a medium-sized church could afford a personal trainer, uh, I actually didn't pay her. I actually... Uh, am her father, and, and I would say gave birth, but that's what my wife did. Um, but I participated. I was there to cheer her on. And um, pretty much ever since Katie's been born, she felt the, the, not only the obligation, but also the freedom to tell me exactly what she's thought about me, which includes my diet, my eating habits, and uh, my a- exercise or the, or the lack thereof. And so it was with great dismay that, that, that I saw her move to Hawaii and know that we wouldn't have that interaction quite as often as we had in the past. I said, you know, gosh, long distance between St. Louis and Hawaii is just going to be so terribly expensive. We'll probably talk like once a month or something. And she goes, oh, Dad, Dad, we got the Sprint family friends plan. We talk for free. I'm like, okay, now I hate the people at Sprint, but I can't really, I can't really vocalize that. Um, but I will say this about my lovely daughter and, and my, you know, personal trainer. She really cares about uh, my health. And she has said to me over and over again since, you know, the time she was basically in college and decided on this major, Dad, it's not just about what you eat. You know, you can change what you eat, and that's probably a good thing. And it probably will be very helpful for you to eat smaller portions and to eat kind of less of, uh, of the stuff, you know, that's really good but not all that good for you and more of the stuff that's really good for you. But that's not, then you can't just go sit on the couch. You have to combine that with, with an exercise regimen. And you can't just go exercise and then go home and, and eat a half dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. Now, I don't know where she ever got that notion that I would do such a thing. But, but to Katie's point, Dad, it's a combination of things. If you really want to be healthy, you got to do several things, and you got to commit to doing them pretty well. Well, I was thinking about that this week when I was studying this passage of Scripture because I talked to lots of folks who struggle on some level in their journey of faith. Uh, and I myself struggle with my journey of faith at times. There are moments when I, I'm, I'm you know, crystal clear and I, and I see the love of God through Christ, uh, and, I, and I'm joyfully his disciple, you know, our... our, our um, uh, our motto at Green Tree is to follow Christ in joyful obedience as we uh, grow disciples, renew communities, and plant churches. And there are moments when I get that joyful obedience, and I, it's just right there. And there are other times where I feel radically lost in my faith, and, and, and I'm stumbling terribly, uh, and I feel very much out of sorts in my relationship with my Lord. And I talk to, to you all, and, and you have that same kind of journey. You see, the question isn't whether or not I'm going to struggle with my diet and with my exercise. The question is whether or not I'm really going to struggle successfully, whether I'm going to, to actually have some, some disciplines in my life that will keep me uh, a relatively healthy person. The same is true spiritually. It isn't a question of whether or not you're going to struggle in your relationship with Christ. I typically say to, to married couples, if anybody that's been married more than 10 minutes knows what a challenge marriage can be. If you're a disciple of Jesus for any amount of time, a week, a month, you know, a few weeks, you're going to see the struggle. It's not a question of if we're going to struggle. It's a question of whether or not we can struggle successfully. And maybe you've had this experience where you're, you're kind of, you know, you're in a bad spot. And you're in a, you know, we call it maybe a desert place. Where you, you feel somewhat uh, detached from the Lord. And somebody says to you, you just need to have more faith. You just need to have more faith. And on the one hand, you want to say, you know, thank you for caring. And on the other hand, you, you know, you, you just kind of want to smack them. That, how is that going to help me? 
What does that mean to have more faith? How do I do that? Is there a practical answer to that question? And I believe that Paul gives us an extraordinarily practical explanation of faith this morning. I told my staff earlier this week, I'm reading scripture that I've read all my life and I'm seeing something I never saw before, which is what I think is so cool about Christianity and the Bible, that you learn something new. So what I'm going to share with you is something that I think I probably had in my head somewhere, but, but I've seen it here now this morning, uh, this week, and I'm excited about how Paul addresses this question of your faith and my faith and how we actually struggle successfully and, and joyfully as we follow Christ. So with that in mind, Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 14, hear the word of God. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members or your your body, as that's just another word that Paul uses there. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, as we uh, look at your word this morning, having sung, holy, 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 the lamb who is worthy, better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. Father, our, our hearts resonate with the truth of your gospel that you are making all things new and that we celebrate not just your glory, not just your worship, but we celebrate the new life that we have in Christ. Because he has come and given himself for us. We can experience a new relationship with you. Father, we pray that those just wouldn't be words on our lips or, or even stop at, at emotions, although uh, joyful emotions are good. But that that truth would sink down into our souls and how we live every day, the decisions we make, the behavior in which we, we, uh, we act, the manner in which we, we reason, set priorities and decide things. Father, this life of faith is a very practical thing. It's not pie in the sky. It's not uh, just theory. It's not just an intellectual conversation, Father. It is your calling on our lives to live by faith. And as Paul lays it out for us this morning, I can't do justice to this. Father, I, I can't begin to unpack this passage in all its richness and all of its fullness and all of its glory. But Father, I pray that you would speak and you would teach, that we would hear your voice this morning. Father, don't let me stand in the way of what you want to say to us. I confess my sin to you. And I ask that, Lord Jesus, you would open our hearts and minds to your truth. We pray in your name. Amen. 
we're going to kind of take this, in a, as the title says, in a bit of a logical progression. Uh, Paul's going to talk to us about this, this idea of faith, what it means to, to be in a relationship with God through Christ Jesus based on faith. And he's going to talk to us about three things. He's going to talk to us about, about what we know. He's going to talk about a foundation of knowledge. He's then going to talk to us about taking that knowledge and applying it to the way we think. So he's going to talk about our, our reasoning capabilities and how that comes under the new life that we have in Christ, then, which ultimately leads to how we act, how we live out our lives. And each of these ingredients, you know, think, uh, or excuse me, uh, know, think, act, are, are all very important. If you take one or two idols, we'll see towards the end of the sermon, you can create all kinds of, of messes for, for yourself and for others. Uh, but also the order in which we take them, I think, is important as well. So let's talk about what we can know. What does Paul teach us about what we can know? Well, he uses this phrase twice, first in verse 6 and then verse 9. In verse 6, he talks about us and what we know about us. And then in verse 9, he talks about what we know about Jesus. So he says in verse 9, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So if you are seeking to follow Christ today, be in a relationship with God through Jesus, Paul says, here's something that you know about yourself. And we'll pick that apart in just a minute. Then he says, now, if you turn your attention towards the Lord Jesus, here's what we know. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, why is it important that we know those things? And and what is Paul uh, saying exactly about this knowledge? Well, let's look at verse 6 for a minute. There are three things I think Paul is saying. He's saying, first of all, we know that we have been crucified with Christ. In other words, we have a change in identity. Uh, The old man is gone, so to speak, and the new man uh, is now on the the horizon. Uh, The new person is who we are in Christ. And so last week we looked at, uh, we're not going to put it back on the screen, Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So, so the first thing we know is that we, we have a change of identity. I'm no longer, in God's eyes, Tom the sinner. I am now Tom the redeemed, because the old Tom was crucified on the cross, the sinful nature of Tom, all the, all, the, all the junk in my life, all the things that separated me from God have been put to death, and I now am a new Tom, a new identity. The second thing he says in verse 6 is, therefore, sin is brought to nothing. And what he means by that is sin at one time was the predominant power in our lives. Sin was the thing that controlled us. It doesn't mean that we always sinned as terribly as we could. It doesn't mean we always reach our full potential in sin. But it does mean that it was always the controlling influence in our life. And it had a power to separate me from God, both spiritually and physically. That power to separate me from God through Christ is now abolished. It literally does not exist anymore. It is gone. And the third thing he says is, therefore, I'm no longer enslaved. I am no longer dictated Uh, how I feel and how I react by this sinful nature, which means I can overcome temptation. There is now a balance of power that has shifted in my life, whereas before sin was the driving force. If I'm a disciple of Christ, if my faith is in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit is residing in me, and he is now at work in my heart to move me towards uh, a, a life that is freed from being enslaved to sin. So Paul says, we know all of this about ourselves. 
Then he goes on in verse 9 to tell us what we know about Christ. And he says this, Christ has been raised from the dead. What does that mean? What that means is that when Jesus went to the cross, he said, I'm going to the cross to take the punishment that men and women and boys and girls, that sinners deserve, and rightly so. We violated God's law. We are not innocent victims. We are culprits. We have rebelled against God. And Jesus said, I'm going to take their punishment. I'm going to become that sin. I'm going to be identified as them, as that sin. Did it work? Did it take? Did the Father say, good job, Jesus, I accept your sacrifice? Or did God say to Jesus, you know what, Eh, wasn't quite enough. Maybe some will get in, but most won't. How did it work? The reason we know it worked, the reason you can have the full assurance that every sin you've ever committed, every sin you're going to commit this week, and every sin you're going to commit until the day you die was nailed to the cross in Christ Jesus, and that grace, that sacrifice was accepted. How do we know that? Because Jesus got out of the grave. And by bringing him back to life, the Father said, the gift is sufficient. That is what we know about Christ. But Paul also says this, therefore, we know that death no longer has dominion over him. What does that mean? It means that the gift, the one-time gift, is good for all of eternity. There's no expiration date. You know, you take a coupon to the store and you have it there, and they go, oh, this expired last week, right? right? My doctor gave me some, some, some uh, stuff for my prescription where it cost $45, but I give him the card and only cost $10. And I went to Target and I, and I gave it to the gal. And she's like, this expired last December. And I'm like, oh boy, my doctor really loves me. But uh, there's no expiration date on your salvation. Jesus isn't going to say, you know, it worked for a little while, but it's not going to work anymore. We know that about Christ. Therefore, my security in my relationship with God through Christ is everlasting. We know this, Paul says. We know it because God's word has made it clear to us. I'm not going to put this verse on the board, but the very first verse we read, if we have been united with him in his death, if we put our faith in Christ as our Savior, like uh, if we've been united with him, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection. Do you hear the conviction in, in Paul's voice? He says, friends, if you're going to live a life of faith, you have to understand something very fundamental. Knowledge is the first building block of faith. If you don't have knowledge... If you don't understand it, if you have never picked up a Bible and read it, if no one's ever sat down with you and shared with you the truth of Jesus Christ, you do not have a foundation for faith. But then he says, it's not only what we know, but it's how we apply what we know. Where does this knowledge lead? Um, Maybe you've read a little bit about conspiracy theories. You know, a few years ago, it was like 9-11. Did the, you know, did the CIA really put all that together to get us to think a certain way? Um, and I was reading uh, this week, again, as I was preparing for the sermon, about some of the claims that, that some of the Republicans made against President Roosevelt back in, in 41 when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And so people came out and said, he knew about it ahead of time. So I actually, I have some time now that we're empty nesters. I actually spent some time studying this this week and, and looking into it a little bit. Spent a couple hours on it. And in my, you know, vast studies of two hours, I've kind of come to the conclusion that that was just something that people were using to try to, to uh, as an election ploy. But at the end of the day, there really isn't a whole lot of evidence that Roosevelt really knew that was going to happen at Pearl Harbor on that day. Did we know that there was stuff going on in the Pacific? Yes. Did we know that war was imminent? Yes. Did we know it was Pearl Harbor, you know, on December 6th, the day of living in infamy? No, we didn't know that for sure. We, we had general non-understanding. Because if he did know, how awful would that be, right? Because we say 
what we know has to be applied to how we think. And Paul says the same thing in verse uh, 11. He says, so you also must consider yourselves, think about reason, okay, that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Paul's basing this on the truth that we think, we reason based on what we know, as I just mentioned about Roosevelt. Now, I know my wife, Cindy. I will be married 30 years come this November. I know her as well as I know anybody else on the planet. And I know when Cindy calls me from school and she goes, hey, I've got this kid in my class. Uh, you know, he or she is really struggling and, and they can't go home. There's, you know, maybe some violence in the home or whatever. Do you think it would be okay if they came and stayed with us for a while, for a day or a week or whatever? Here's what I know. I know that that is not a question. <laughs> That's a statement. And it's a polite statement, but it's a statement that says, I'm bringing a kid home, and he or she will be with me. I'm not sure how long. To which my response is to be, because I can reason based on what I know, right? My response is to get out a pen and a piece of paper and say, what do they like for breakfast? They like regular milk or they like chocolate milk? Because I know I got to go to the grocery store. One of they want to take the lunch tomorrow. She's also saying, are the sheets in the spare bedrooms clean? Uh, I don't know, but I'll check that too. I, I can reason that because what I know about my wife. Paul says we apply what we know about being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Therefore, our reasoning, our thinking, how we set our priorities, how we make our decisions, uh, the choices that we make in life are considered choices of faith based on the knowledge that we have of the relationship in which we enjoy through Jesus Christ with God the Father. In other words, if you're going to have a life of faith, you can't just know information. You actually then have to take that, that information and begin to allow it to inform your reasoning and your thinking so that we consider. That word consider means to weigh in the balance, to take into account so the second building block of faith based on knowledge is, is thinking and reasoning. Um, a lot of you know that I enjoy coaching hockey. Uh, I love hockey. I'm depressed this time of year. The Blues missed the playoffs again. Uh, I'm in a funk. Uh, I'll probably come out of it in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, the Cardinals are finally playing a little bit better, so that, that's helping me. Uh, but, you know, I, I have this passion for hockey. But uh, anybody that knows me knows that I really love coaching at Kirkwood because it gives me a chance to hang out with families in Kirkwood. And this, this is where I live. These, these are people that, that I, that I want to know uh, because I have opportunity after opportunity. You know, you go to a hockey rink and people get to know you a little bit and they're like, you're a pastor and you, and you like hockey. I'm not sure how you, you know, you put all that together. Hockey folks are, you know, we don't necessarily think of hockey folks as really deeply spiritual people. And my response is I hear people calling out to Jesus all the time at the rink. I, I don't know what rink you're going to, but, but they're, they're more vocal about the name of Jesus than people in my congregation are. So... You know, they're, they're very spiritual folks. But there's some reasoning going on there. I know that people need to hear the gospel. Because I have that knowledge, because I see what God has done in my life, I reason that God could use me to share that with some other folks. That's part of our faith. I know that I'm a new creature in Christ. Therefore, when temptation comes my way, and it's, you know, it's put right there in front of me to lash out and to be angry at someone. I reason I don't have to go there. I'm not enslaved to sin anymore. I'm a new person in Christ. I can turn my back on that temptation. And my reasoning takes on a whole different shape. So Paul says you got to know, you got to think, but then you got to apply that and you got to act. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. 
Verse 12, he begins by telling us, here's what you want to avoid. Here's the direction you don't want to go. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Paul says that's a choice that we make. It's as if when when sin comes or the temptation comes and I go, you know what? I'm compelled. I got to give into that again. Paul says it's like you're obeying an expelled, dethroned tyrant who isn't even there. We talked last week about a person who kind of wakes up at night in a cold sweat, uh, an ex-POW, because in their mind they're still in the, in the POW camp when actually they're in the safety of their own bed. And, and that's kind of what happens in your heart and my heart. We go, oh, there's that temptation again, and I, I just know I'm going to give in to it because I always have. And we literally are obeying something that isn't there. And Paul says, you got to avoid that. You don't just blindly walk down the path of, uh, of giving yourself over to sin. And there are passions because those passions don't control you anymore, even if you don't realize that that's the truth. He goes on in, uh, in verse 13 at the beginning. He says this, uh, again, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. In other words, he says, don't just actively participate in sin as if you had no choice in the matter. I talk to a lot of couples who, uh, who are in premarital counseling, and I'll ask them this question. I'll say, what causes you guys to fight? What causes disagreements uh, between the two of you? You know, not that you fight all the time. I'm sure you're very much in love right now and you're kind of going through the courtship and romantic stage, but, but what causes you to, to disagree? What causes you to argue? And inevitably, about 100% of the couples with whom I ask that question say fundamentally the same thing. They blame it on their past. Well, here's what happened to me when I was younger. Or they blame it on the circumstances. You know, I have, you know, usually it happens when I've had a bad day at work and, you know, we're going out for dinner afterwards and I'm kind of in a grumpy mood or I didn't get my workout in and, and I really wasn't very nice to him because I didn't feel real good. And, and they're victims. They're victims. Now, friends, I understand that a person's past has, can have terrible consequences in how they see themselves. I, I, my wife, who I adore, was abused as a child. I've lived with her in, in that process of healing there. I, I get that. I'm not, I'm not saying that isn't the case. But hear Paul clearly. Paul says, when we see ourselves as the victim, we immediately lose sight of faith because we are the culprits. We are the ones who put Christ on the cross. Jesus died that death so that your sins could be forgiven, so that my sins could be forgiven. Not just the person next to you, in front of you, or behind you. You nailed Christ to the cross. I nailed Jesus to the cross. Say what you want about Mel Gibson. He got it right in the Passion of the Christ. When they closed in and zoomed in on the the scene where the hands were nailed to the cross, and Gibson insisted that it would be his hands holding the spike and drumming and hitting the hammer because he wanted to be reminded of his culpability. Friends, a life of faith is not a life where we immediately claim that we are victims and we have no control. Paul says it's, it's as if you present yourself as, as instruments of righteousness. You're purposely saying, well, that's who I am. Paul says you can't, you can't go there. You've got to understand your culpability. When I ask those couples the question, uh, who, what causes that? And I get the answer. I say, well, let's go to James 4. And James 4 says, uh, the, question, I, I'm at, the question James asking is, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And they says this, don't they come from the passions, the evil passions, the evil desires that are at war within your own soul? James says a life of faith is actually looking in the mirror and understanding how much I need a Savior. And that's what Paul is saying here. We cannot present ourselves that way. But he also flips it to the positive. What should we be doing? How, what positive and brave, uh, behavior do we embrace? 
Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What does that mean? Well, let's play it out just a little bit. First of all, present yourselves to God. I have a new king. I give him his rightful place. The reason we come to worship and we sing praise, we sing worship, part of that is to remind us that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our whole theme for Holy Week, worthy is the Lamb. And so Paul says, you want to actively put God in his rightful place. And then he says, you want to remember that you've been been brought from death to life. You're a joyful recipient of grace. You actually act like somebody who's been forgiven. You actually act like somebody who got good news about someone they thought was dead and then actually found out that they weren't. I, I think I've told you this story before. I went to a hospital one time years ago to pray for an elderly couple. She was on her deathbed. And I mean, I'm, they were in their early 90s. This was inevitable. And we're praying, and, and my prayer was, you know, Lord, you can, you can certainly heal her. You can certainly, uh, you know, make her better. Uh, but if you're taking her home, you know, we're praying for grace to go through that transaction and, and, and to care well for, for, uh, uh, for this man as he'll be grieving the loss of his wife. They've been married for, you know, 60-something years. I go back in the hospital room the next day. She's sitting up in bed. She's having a snack. And he looks at me like I'm the greatest prayer warrior that's ever walked the face of the earth. I'm not kidding you. He, talk about a joyful recipient of grace. I am not kidding you. About four years later, I got a check in the mail from their estate. They, they'd written me a check for about $250 because he thought I had given his wife, you know, an extension on life. Can you imagine what it would be like if you thought somebody was dead and then you found out they were alive? So I mean, somebody you love and you thought they were gone and then you find out they're not. How could your joy possibly be contained? And Paul says, that's right. That's it. That's who we are in Christ. We've been brought from death to life. You ought to celebrate. You ought to rejoice, and your life ought to reflect that. And he says, because of that, then what do you do? You present yourself as an instrument for righteousness. I'm a vessel. I'm a conduit through which two things happen, the worship of God and grace extended to others. It has to go someplace. So first it goes vertical. God always gets the glory. And then it goes horizontal. People around me should be the benefactors of a life of joyful obedience to Christ. Friends, that's the journey of faith. So then when I face that temptation, I do so with joy, knowing what Christ has done for me. And I can say to that temptation, that sin, you got no hold on me because Christ owns me. He bought me at the cross. I don't belong to you anymore. And I got to tell you, friends, there are times when I got to say that verbally. I got to look myself in the mirror and I got to quote those scripture verses of what I know in order to get my reasoning going the right direction so I will walk away from that sin instead of embrace it and believe the lie of who I used to be. It's a question of knowing, thinking, and acting. It's a life of faith. I believe that the ingredients and the order are crucial. What happens if you, if, if you lose one of these? And I'm going I'm to indulge your, your patience for just a, a few more minutes. What happens if I made up this, this little chart by myself with my computer? I learned some fun things yesterday afternoon. What if you have uh, reasoning and action, the ones that are, that are in the red? What if those are working, but you don't have any knowledge? Okay, you've never picked up a Bible, you don't read it, but you know something about Jesus, you think it's pretty good, and you try to do that. I think what's going to happen is you're going to be a very well-meaning but easily misguided disciple of Jesus. I think the, te- the, the danger will be that my happiness supplants the glory of God. Well, Jesus died on the cross. He wants me to be happy, right? He wants me to be joyful, right? So if I'm not happy in this marriage, God's will is for me to get out of this marriage, right? It becomes my, my happiness becomes my knee-jerk reaction. Trust and faith and joyful obedience have no place in it because God just wants me to be, be great. 
and feel good about myself. And opinion outweighs truth. You see, friends, I know that, that we, you know, you talk about theology and people kind of start to yawn automatically and you start to toss out, you know, words like justification and sanctification and propitiation and redemption. Those are all big, big terms. And we need to make sure as pastors we're doing a good job at breaking it down so we understand it. But friends, that's our lifeblood. If you take knowledge out of the equation, we're easily misguided. We get off the path way too quickly. A lot of you have read our response to Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. I don't have a bone to pick with Mr. Bell personally. I'm sure he's a wonderful human being, but he is, he is asserting that there is no eternal condemnation, that there is no hell in the long run, that, that, that God and what Christ has done on the cross, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Now, he wouldn't, if he stood up in front of you today, he would say, no, I'm not saying that. But when you read his book, that's exactly what he's saying. And Bell says this in defending his position in an interview and in discussing life after death. He says, we are now, when you die... Firmly in the realm of speculation, Christians have built whole dogmas on speculation. Really? Again, no disrespect to Mr. Bell, but have you picked up your Bible, brother? Have you read it? Scripture couldn't be more clear on the gift of God in Christ Jesus and how God brings his justice and his mercy together at the cross and that today is a day of salvation and that it is appointed for man once to die and then to face judgment, either to eternal life or to eternal wrath if we have rejected the cross of Christ. And we need to know and understand what the Bible says. Because if we read the Bible carefully, we can see how God brings that together in his perfection. Mr. Bell went on to kind of celebrate this thought that I'm a pastor and not a theologian or a scholar. (laughs) Again, brother, with all due respect, really? (laughs) You You can't do it. It doesn't matter what the Bible says as long as we're nice to each other. And again, I don't mean, to, I don't mean to, to be rude or to be disrespectful, but friends, if you take knowledge out of the equation, you're lost. You're sunk. You'll run down so many rabbit trails and you'll be so confused about what true faith is. But what if you just lived for knowledge? What if it was just about knowing and, and, and thinking and it never really got down to your feet? Well, the theole- theoretical calculations, intellectual conversations, those are, those are fun. I enjoy having a cup of coffee with somebody and asking some hard questions. But what about the joyful obedience? What about God's call in my life to trust him and to follow him and to put this into practice? You see, a lot of us think being right is the objective. A lot of us stop there and say, now that I got the right information, I'm good. And we forget that God actually wants to take that and apply it to our lives so that we'll be instruments of righteousness. Ultimately, that is the goal of God, so that that righteousness, that justice and mercy come together in a beautiful way at the cross of Christ so that the way I live reflects that grace. It's Palm Sunday, friends. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, on the most lowly animal he could find, and he stopped before he got to town. And he looked at Jerusalem and he knew the people there were going to murder him in a few days. And he didn't get angry. He didn't get indignant. He didn't say, I'll show them a thing or two. He wept. He was brokenhearted. And at that moment, he demonstrated what it meant to be an instrument of righteousness, showing the grace and the mercy of God. And so Paul rightly concludes in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but under grace. Do you know that? Do you know it? Do you take your knowledge of that and apply it to your reasoning and your thinking? And do we then act accordingly? 
That's the journey of faith. Let's pray.